You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. The surge in COVID-19 cases affecting teachers and students across the globe is disconcerting as the academic year gets underway. Today, we take a closer look at what's happening on the Big Island, where a cluster at a charter school is being monitored. HPR's Ku'uvehi Reishi joins us. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Uh, just as we were sitting down, you know, we got that press release from the governor's office talking about uh, this uh, sort of concerns by state health authorities about the spike in cases on our neighbor island, so Maui, and also Hawaii Island. Um, and this, I think, is what we're seeing, uh, particularly on the big island this morning. Hawaii County Defense, uh, Civil Defense had reported 71 active cases, um, and so including 13 that have been hospitalized, which is really something uh, to pay attention to. Now, I know that's not for some paying attention to the uh, Oahu cases, uh, 245 today for Honolulu uh, City and County compared to the 71 over on the Big Island. But uh, just for context, in the first two weeks of August, uh, the Big Island was only seeing about one, two, maybe three at the most cases, new cases a day. So very low numbers. And now we're in the double digits. Uh, so Big Island residents are sort of feeling the impact of the surge as well. Uh, multiple businesses have temporarily closed either because a uh, employee has come up positive uh, for COVID-19 places like I know Ken's Pancake House, um, Leong's Chop Suey House, uh, restaurants have closed and uh, other businesses have decided, you know, with community spread and the risk of that, maybe I'll close my doors till everything kind of calms down. Uh, Eric Honda, head of the Hawaii District Health Office, uh, said he's seeing multiple cases associated with social gatherings, uh, which is actually what uh, epidemiologist, state epidemiologist Dr. Sarah Park had mentioned in, the, in today's press release, uh, that these, uh, this uptick in cases is coming from social gatherings on the Hilo side, uh, where uh, preventative measures such as wearing a mask or social distancing uh, isn't uh, being followed. At least in these cases, Honda mentioned a case where coworkers were eating lunch and someone took off their mask, birthday parties, a large funeral, apparently. Uh, there was video on social media of the, uh, the funeral where you could plainly see that there was no social distancing or masks. And uh, the news really seems to have taken Big Island residents by surprise. Hawaii uh, County Councilwoman Sue Liloy had mentioned that she, you know, she thinks that that folks thought that this was uh, farther away than than right in their backyard. I think we've lived in a bubble a little bit, thinking, oh, you know, it's because of the tourist or it's not going to happen to us. When it starts to impact our loved ones just one or two degrees away from us, this is what it'll take for people to take it seriously. It's not a virus that's coming from offshore. It is here in our community, and we need to be resolute. Uh, Liloy lives in the Hawaiian Homestead uh, community of Pana'eva and represents Keokaha and Pana'eva, which is uh, where the COVID cluster that you were talking about uh, at the charter school in Keokaha, Ka'omeke Ka'eo Public Charter School, had popped up uh, in the beginning of last week. So Monday, they had sent out a letter to the community, same day as school starting for students. Uh, all students were doing distance learning, so there was, they weren't in a, in a confined space, and uh, eight members ended up growing from that cluster. So sorry, so Monday they had reported one a staff member having COVID. By the end of the week on Friday, that grew to eight. So this was mainly faculty, the teachers? Mainly faculty and yes, and staff. And so, um, you know, this, this idea that um, there was distance learning material too. So co contact tracing and testing is being done, but there was a potential exposure to some students through teachers having to hand out these distance learning materials. And so the Department of uh, State Health Authorities have said they've, they're aggressively pursuing contact tracing in this particular cluster because it's in a very um, susceptible neighborhood. So Keokaha, uh, lots of kupuna, uh, also lots of uh, younger children, um, and a very heavy uh, Hawaiian community. So Keokaha community leader Patrick Kahawaiola'a had expressed concern uh, that uh, testing and, and contact tracing really need to be ramped up in the area to make sure the spread hasn't already, you know, it's not already out there. So here's Kahawaiola. 
you know, it just got too close to home. Then look at the community, right? We get plenty kupuna. And that's why I got concerned about because many of them live alone or the grandchildren go home, stay with them. So if they're from the Haumana from the school, that's where they go in. So testing was made available uh, on Monday morning, and Kavaiola had got, gotten tested himself, but there were s- scores of cars, long lines uh, in Keokaha itself, and uh, Mayor Harry Kim had mentioned that they are doing another uh, testing tomorrow at Kawananakua Gym in Keokaha from 9 to 12, and this is uh, free. This is also through... Um, are uh, Dr. Scott Miskovich and Premier Medical Group. So uh, they've hit the ground running, uh, as you would say. But uh, as I mentioned earlier, a, a majority of these cases are being linked to those social gatherings where no mask, no social distancing. And, and Mayor Harry Kim says he re- he's reviewing the policies, uh, potential policy changes and potential restrictions or limitations. Uh, but as he's done since the beginning of the pandemic, he he's He's a more hands-off mayor. He doesn't want to do, he had said, expressed uh, pretty adamantly yesterday, no stay-at-home measures. We're, we're not there. We need people to listen to the policies in place. And um, I think he's kind of going to he's gonna stick with that. But if cases continue, you could see some changes. Here's Kim. From day one, we said this is a community issue, and it's going to take a community involvement for us to uh, take care of it. Policies of number of gatherings and this is allowed and that is allowed, not allowed, is really uh, not the cure or stoppage. It needs a community to address it. So Mayor, Mayor Kim has uh, said he's paying attention right now to hospitalization rates because for the past few months, at, I think it was just one case of hospitalization that they had encountered on the, on the Big Island. Now uh, they've got 13 in the hospital, uh, Hilo Hospital, Four in the ICU as of yesterday. I'm not sure with the three additional um, individuals that were admitted overnight or yesterday, uh, if whether they're in ICU. Uh, but Dan Brinkman, CEO of uh, Hilo Medical Center, says that the Big Island had the benefit, or, or at least he did, of experiencing this surge later in the pandemic. So it gave him some time uh, to prepare the hospital in terms of surge capacity, but also to look at what's being done at other hospitals. Um, and to apply that to uh, Hilo's situation. He says Hilo Hospital's in good shape uh, with PPE and medication uh, for COVID patients. Uh, no one is on a ventilator as of wow. yesterday as well, which is, which is promising, um, but that the hospital also has that, that surge capacity if they need an additional 46 or so hospital beds. He, he joked that, he, you know, we're not queens, we're not a big hospital, there are limitations, and um, one of them he thinks uh, is something that he's paying attention to is staffing. Uh, certainly there are limitations. Uh, staffing is one. It takes trained people certainly to care for these folks. Um, so we're experiencing or we can um, experience some staff shortages if these numbers continue to grow. So county health officials are advising Big Island residents, you know, masks, social distancing, uh, take this seriously because it uh, is definitely out in the community. Right. And, you know, going back to the uh, immersion school, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if you know the answer to this, but as far as the reporting, it, are charter schools in, uh, included when the DOE reports, you know, those complexes where cases come up? I am not uh, sure. I don't have the answer to that. I do know that the uh, that the principal and the board members for that particular school have been very um, adamant about communication, to, especially to their students and parents. Um, I've heard from some parents who have been, you know, very satisfied with that communication. Outside of that, um, I think I, I'm not sure what to... Um, look for next time to see who's going to be telling us about that. Right. Well, we'll just have to, uh, I guess, keep our fingers crossed for uh, for Hawaii Island there. And Thank masks you so m- up. Yes, <laughs> masks up. Thank you so much, Kuvehi. Right. That was HBR's Kuvehi Reishi talking about the surge of COVID cases on the Big Island. You can find her story online at hawaiipublicradio.org. <laughs>
This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz. You have probably seen the large neon sign with a star and the words, Jesus coming soon. It's atop buildings of the Apostolic Faith Church. Charles and uh, Ada Lockbaum founded the church in 1923. It's currently led by head pastor William Hahn Jr. If you're driving on the H1 freeway, you can see the famous sign on the church's Kalihi headquarters. According to its website, the church's Kingdom of God Crusade telecast can be seen every Sunday morning on local television with simulcasts along the West Coast, Utah, and New York City. In addition to the Kalihi headquarters, its churches can be found across the Hawaiian Islands, including Lahaina Maui. Uh, that location has been referenced in a song. Take a listen. They even brought a neon sign. Jesus is coming. And for today's quiz, what is the name of the song and the band who wrote it? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you think you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app, at locationshawaii.com. to hunker down again are giving us reason to pause. Neil Milner joins us for the long view to talk about what this means for places we are used to frequenting for food. Good morning, Neil. Good morning. I'm glad you wanted to talk about this because I got a frantic text from a friend who said, oh no, Kilani Bakery is, you know, shutting down <laughs> uh, uh, until further notice. And we just spent, you know, some time just talking about the lemon meringue pie and the brownies and the prune cake. So we're worried that it's not going to reopen. Well, I'm going to go get something to eat after that introduction, so <laughs> you'll have to cover the show yourself. Uh, no, the, uh, this is an essay by uh, Brian Washington in a magazine called Oxford American about what restaurants mean. And he talks about his experience in Houston and, and the COVID and so on. And um, it's really about not the economics of the restaurant business, which, of course, right now is sad and so on, and it's not simply about restaurants closing, which have also was a concern. The figure I saw is that at least 40 restaurants on, uh, in Honolulu have already closed. It's about what restaurants mean to us in terms of our sense of connection and our memories and a place where we feel comfort and flexibility at the same time. Let me just read you what he's trying to get at here. He says, I guess what I'm trying to say is this. Restaurants are where life is lived. They're where I've lived my life. If we're willing to sacrifice those venues, then we're willing to sacrifice our cities as we know them. And he talks about the different kinds of ethnic restaurants and so on. And Houston is a very diverse city. Its uh, restaurant scene is probably even more diverse than Hawaii. But the way he goes about this is to look at what it means to be a regular in a restaurant where it's a hangout for you. Well, you know, I know at the start of this pandemic, uh, I called up my kids and I said, you know, you better go to, uh, uh, it was a Maple Garden, Yen King. And I said, you know, we had such wonderful memories as a family going to that restaurant. Go support them. <laughs> you know? Yeah, sure. We all have places like that. I mean, you know, Hawaii, 
when, when people tell stories about living in Hawaii, they almost invariably include food memories. Um, it's one of the ways that you would define yourself in terms of where you live and what you like. You know, I've written in other places that if you're, if you're a Howley here moving here, you get food tests, right? People ask you what you eat and what you don't eat, and they test you because part of becoming part of this place, making a connection, is eating certain foods. And the, the kind of connection that Washington is interested in, this is Brian Washington, the writer, is what it means to be a regular. He said, you know, if you, he said, I have a lot of restaurants around, you know, he's talking mainly small ones, but big ones, where I consider myself being a regular. And being a regular means two things, one of which it means you're probably going to have people in there that know you, uh, that are familiar with you, and you feel comfortable. But there are also places when you're a regular where you can feel totally comfortable not talking to everybody, being alone and having some of the language he uses is too colorful for radio, but where you can be all by yourself and not have to worry. And he said, when you lose that, you're losing an important part of your life. He, doesn't, he talks about the food being good, but a lot of it is about how you feel in these places. And I'm guessing that the folks who are listening right now have those kinds of places. They're hangouts. They're like that. For me, for example, the Starbucks and Coco Marina over, the, over time has become that place where people know me, where I can sit and write or read all alone. Um, and people miss that when they can't go there anymore. I know, and it's funny, too, when you think, oh, yeah, you know, someone mentions this one place and they have a favorite dish, and you, and you think, well, gee, I've never tried that. I go there and I order my one thing. Yeah. You know? yeah. Well, the other thing is, you know, we still, we, we used to eat out a lot before the, the pandemic. I mean, eat, not dine, not fancy places. We just go out. And now we do that fairly often, but it's takeout. But it's not the same. You don't have that connection, that sense of place. And that's what I think is something we have to remember. These are very disorienting times. Our whole sense of place is different, right? Geographically, how far we become from our families and so on. And restaurants really play an important role in, in, in giving us that sort of sense of place. I mean, you said you'll drive, what, 20, 25 miles to the bakery in Wahiawa to pick up a pie. That's not just because the pie tastes good. It's because other people in, you know, in your group your loved ones like the pie and, and have good memories about it, and it brings, brings folks together. And I worry about the baker because I know she had only made those pies, you know, a, a couple days a week because, you, you know, you couldn't find it every single day, so you had to time it, and you had to get there before they ran out. So yeah. I, w I wonder well, about her. I worry about, you know, her sure. employment. And also because you're kind of a regular for that pie, you know the routine. You know it's there. You know the baker. And that's also an important part of your life. It, it, makes, it, it makes it fuller. You know, we do a huge Thanksgiving uh, dinner every year. It's partly potluck and partly the, the host uh, cook it. And uh, it's become a real tradition. And most of the people who are there are not folks who have uh, extended family here because they moved from the mainland. It, it's, it's now been called off for sure. And we were sharing a Zoom call about how sad that was and um, whether we could do just jokingly meals on wheels, right, where you would deliver, I don't know, you deliver the stuffing. Um, but that sense of, of community, that sense of being together to eat is, is just as important for these restaurants as anything else. I'm thinking of some of the old places where politicians used to hang out. Everybody knew that it was a place. When, when Frank Fossey was alive, it was the Wisteria. And those became important places for people to see and be seen and, and to be comfortable. And so that when restaurants close now, it's more than as sad as it is people losing their jobs and people losing their stake. It's the fact that it takes one, it, it, one more thing in what makes our life um, interesting and pleasant um, and more interactive that, that uh, is gone. Well, I do pine for the, uh, the tempura at Wisteria Restaurant and the uh, oxtail soup. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, 
been a long time. Well, the, the zippies nearby, I think, picked up some of that traffic, but never the same way. Wisteria had kind of places you could sit to be on your own. Yeah, those are food memories, right? They're not just about the taste. They're also about the, what the place was like inside and what the neighborhood used to be around Wisteria and how that's changing now and so on. Yes, and, and I just flashed on the Columbia Inn and oh, yeah. where the journalists would go. And uh, you know, and and you know the Star Star uh, Bulletin and the Honolulu Advertiser, which are no more. <laughs> yes, yeah, uh, that's right. The Colombian down on on, uh, on Kapiolani. Yeah, there just were a lot of those kinds of places. We don't have here the neighborhood bar tradition that other cities have, where the you know the local, as the, the neighborhood pubs in, in England are called. But I think you know, if you go to this big city diner in Kaimuki, you'll find. Same kind of people going there, going there fairly regularly. Um, they get to know you. And that's not the same as takeout, and it's certainly not the same if that restaurant disappears. I know, and then with this pending shutdown on Thursday, um, I, I, we just heard, you know, the Chamber of Commerce Hawaii, you know, their concern for the small businesses because they just fear that even though this is only going to be two weeks, you know, who's going to survive on the other side? No, that's exactly right. But remember the depth of that problem, that, of course, the most important thing and the obvious thing is the economics of those restaurants surviving. But we also, as Washington says, we lose a little piece of ourselves if those restaurants close, and that that's an integral part of the city. When we start thinking about transforming Hawaii, which is a word that I'm ambivalent about because it's, it's way too grandiose. You know, post-COVID, what we're going to do, one of the things that we would like to see, again, is these little places um, that you kind of take for granted or at least, you know, everybody doesn't know about. And uh, that's as much a part of the transformation of, and recovery. And, I, again, not just for economic reasons, but for uh, you know, just for the reasons of our own lives. Yes, they feed our soul. Thank you so much, Neil. You're welcome. Take care. That was Neil Milner, retired professor of political science and contributing editor of our segment, The Long View. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, committed to the community's health with a temporary museum closure and offering digital experiences at honolulumuseum.org. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Mars Cafe, the coronavirus has glaringly shown a spotlight on disparities in connectivity and the digital divide. We'll talk to the National Digital Inclusion Alliance to learn about digital equity, digital inclusion, and what is being done across the country to close this gap. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. On our reality check today, we talk about the COVID situation in our jailhouses and prisons. Honolulu Civil Beats reporter Kevin Dayton on the line today. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Captain. How are you? So you've got a headline. The unions are calling for the removal of Chief uh, Nolan Espinda. Uh, yes, they are. Um, as most people, I think, probably know by now, um, the Oahu Community Correctional Center is now the largest uh, infection cluster in the state thus far in the pandemic. And yesterday, uh, UPW, which represents more than 13,000 working people, public employees, as well as private, uh, called for the governor to basically press uh, Nolan Espinda, the director of the Department of Public Safety, to resign. Now, a little while after the uh, union issued that statement, the Hawaii Government Employees Association jumped in uh, basically to support them. Uh, HGEA is even larger with about 40,000 members and retirees that they represent, and they are also calling for uh, Mr. Espinda to resign. Now, we saw a number of unions band together, you know, w with concern about, I think, the opening of school. We saw the Hawaii State Teachers Association uh, and I think HGA uh, expressing concern. But this is a little different because they're saying he needs to go. Yeah, the, the, I think the issue is, is that to date there have been 242 inmates who were infected and 51 staff. And we've been told by staff at OCCC that 
five of those ACOs are actually hospitalized. Um, the Department of Health confirms that they know of three. Um, and, and so there's a lot of fear um, within the facility, both on the part of inmates and staff, that, that the, the infection is out of control and that um, there isn't enough being done to curb the, the number of infections and to make the situation any better. You know, we did have the gift of time there, and we were just talking with uh, HBR's Kuve Hirishi. Where they were talking about the situation with the hospitals on the Big Island, and they think that, you know, they're going to be okay with PPE. Uh, but, yeah, certainly we had the gift of time with the prisons. We knew this was coming. It was bound to happen, and now it has. Yeah, and I, I think that's part of the problem is that if you talk to staff, staff will tell you that from the very beginning of the pandemic, they've been complaining that there hasn't been enough PPE, there hasn't been medical-grade masks for staff who are working in very crowded conditions. Um, in fact, uh, staff and inmates both, uh, up, up to this point, uh, have, for the most part, been using uh, cloth masks that, are, that have been sewed by Wyaba Correctional Facility inmates. Um, and, and then another problem has been that we learned that, that OCCC has been cutting corners on admissions. So the, the normal procedure and the one that's used by the Federal Detention Center over by the airport is when an inmate comes in, you isolate them for 14 days, the logic being that that will give a chance for the, the virus to pass if anybody is infected on their way in and limit the spread of the disease within the facility. We now know that, that OCCC did not do that. In some cases, the, um, the isolation was cut short because of overcrowding. And we know for a fact also that on Maui, they were actually instructing their staff to just isolate incoming inmates for five days. That's probably not a recipe for um, a safe facility. And how is it that HGA is getting involved? Because UPW normally represents the uh, ACOs, right? Yeah. Um, I, I, to be honest with you, I'm not clear on exactly what membership HGEA has that would be um, directly involved in the operation of correctional facilities. But we do know that HGA and UPW are, are uh, work together frequently on various issues, and the heads of both of those unions are very active with ASME, um, and so that the sort of umbrella labor organization, and that may have played a part. Well, uh, I I know that uh, Nolan Espenda his uh, confirmation was a bit dicey the last go around, and UPW's Dayton Kanilua had uh, supported him back then. He did, and uh, since then, one of the things that's changed is that Dayton was removed uh, from the union for concern of, in connection with concerns about the management of money by the union, and taking his place was Administrator Liz Ho, and Liz has been hearing um, a great deal of concern from, from the ACOs that she represents, and it doesn't seem to be dying down much. Uh, you may recall also that there have actually been disturbances within OCCC um, on uh, I believe it was uh, mid-August, basically uh, August 15 and 16. So there's a lot of tension in the facility and a lot of concern about the situation there. Right. Yeah, we don't want to see what happened at the Maui prison uh, happen here where the numbers are much larger. But thanks so much, Kevin. Okay, thank you. We've been talking with uh, reporter Kevin Dayton. Uh, he's had our reality check for the day. Visit civilbeat.org to read his latest story. The city recently launched its virtual job fair. Its website aims to make it easier for those looking for jobs to navigate around the system. We talked to Gwen Inamasu, the Human Resources Manager for Honolulu. There's about 40 vacancies, actually, for entry professionals, clerical, and specialty, specialty classes. So people can go and apply, and if they need assistance applying, they can make an appointment at the Department of Community services, the one Oahu job links at Dillingham. They make appointments and so people can help them if they don't have access to computers. Okay, so they'll walk, them them, they'll walk them through the process. Yes, they can walk them through that. Otherwise, they can just apply from home and then when once they apply, then departments will be sent the applications. That's all online. 
and then they'll be contacting them for interviews. So you've got a wide range of job openings. I recall at the beginning of the year when I was looking at the vacancy list, yeah. you had a number of openings, let's say, in facility maintenance. Uh, you know, there were, there were openings at the Liquor Commission. That would be the liquor inspector. So that was on recruitment. So what happens is some jobs are on recruitment, and it's open for a certain period, and then we close it. There's also jobs, and these are like our civil service jobs, which have where are open, and it's because it's on continuous because we have difficulty finding people, and those would be jobs like maybe lead liquor electronic equipment repair. So that one you need an electrician's license. So, so some of the ones that are on continuous for a while, it's because they have requirements like licenses or degrees. Our stuff that's kind of hard to find because, you know, we provide services, you know, to the public, various kinds of services. So, and for people to provide the services, like we have engineers, so they need licenses, licensed engineers, electricians, we have uh, plumbers. So that kind of us, you know, services that we provide, and it does have um, requirements. So as I see here, as I look on the site, it looks like um, liquor control investigator is still open. So that one is where they assist the needed uh, two years of inspection or investigational work experience and valid driver license. And what they do is they go out and they enforce some of the laws. They get trained first, yeah, inspect premises, liquor premises, and Lately, they've been enforcing some of the, I guess, the gathering orders, yeah, because some of the bars have been not you know, complying. So they go out, cite them, and close them. So it, the job kind of evolves because there's not that many, I guess, bars that are supposed to be open right now. So. Well, can you walk us through the civil service positions? What is that involved? Okay, so for contract, it's a little bit different. They apply to that site that I mentioned. And the department will determine who they're going to hire and whether or not they meet the qualifications. For a civil service job, it's different, you know, so you have to meet the requirements. So you have to go to our site and we list all our jobs there and apply. And there's also supplemental questions that you have to fill out. Isn't there a test, a civil service um, test? Some had tests, but we had to postpone some of those, too. The only ones where we did have tests would be entry-level, really, really entry-level, where we expect, like, a lot of people that we would need a test. But most of them are just based on your experience. So it's how you fill out the supplemental questions. So what happens is you can apply. and say it has requirements. It will be reviewed by staff. And then once we determine if you meet the qualifications or not, we'll send you a notification if you didn't meet the qualifications, then you have like 10 days to submit more information or get clarification about that. Then we evaluate all the applications. We may assign a score or not based on what you filled out. And then we send the names in rank order, if there is a rank, to the department. If there's not a rank because there's not that many people, so we wouldn't need to give you a score. You're just considered qualified. Okay, and then the department then conducts let's, its own interviews? Let's schedule the interviews, yeah. With these COVID times, you mentioned that you've suspended the testing. So has it really changed that process? It just means that instead of a test, because we have had issues with scheduling groups of people, all six foot distance apart, it was just too difficult. So what it means is that we had to then evaluate the applications based on experience and education and Maybe assign a score. It depends on how many people applied. So that's different. So we, we've always had that option. It's just that for the larger groups, we would sometimes use a test because then it kind of ranks people based on how they answer the questions, which are you know job-related to the job. So most of the open positions now with Honolulu, are they more of the entry-level contract hire type of positions? Mm -hmm. The ones that are on recruitment for civil service is not necessarily entry level. I, I talked about the liquor control investigator, and that one 
it's it's a one, but it's not an entry level, but required at least two years of inspectional or investigative work. The only ones that don't have requirements would be blue collar like custodian, a groundskeeper, and maybe laborer. We get like hundreds applied because there's no real requirements, so to speak. But departments can still look at what kind of experience you have. So how different is it when you post a job now than when you were posting at the beginning of the year when when unemployment was so low? I think there's still people that apply. It's still difficult to find specialty classes and those that have certain requirements. I think there was somewhat of a dip a little bit, meaning not as many people were applying, and yet it depends because then they were to apply for certain things. So it didn't you- seem that much different, but uh, we noticed that the... The requests aren't coming is coming in from departments as frequently, and I haven't really noticed if a lot of people are applying or not. Mm. It's, it's been kind of static, I think. We have a kind of a core bunch that applies for stuff. Cause I think sometimes people apply for stuff because I don't know if it, they they waive that for the unemployment, yeah. Oh but right. We, we do find people apply and. You know, they don't qualify. Anything else that you think would be helpful for people to know with these city jobs? I think it's uh, it's a good idea to just, just to come and check it out, to see what kind of jobs we have. Uh, there might be something that they like. And then if they're not sure, they can always make an appointment, go to the Oahu One links, that Dillingham location. What yeah. about for jobs, let's say, at the fire department? Those come up maybe every three years, and those we, we would have a test. We don't know when the next one will be because normally we get about 3,000, yeah, applying. And and there's no way you can refer that many people to the department. You need to have a test. And now with the restrictions, venues would be an issue to test that much people. Amazing to think there's that high interest in becoming a firefighter. That was Gwen Inamasu, Human Resources Manager for the City and County of Honolulu. Uh, We will have links uh, on our website uh, for the places that uh, you can go to for help. But we should note that the website does not include openings with the Honolulu Police Department. We plan to hear more about the hiring process there in the weeks to come. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Care Choices in Hilo, serving East Hawaii, offering palliative, hospice, and bereavement care with openings for health care and administrative positions. Application at hawaiicarechoices.org. Nearly 200 businesses across the state rely on HPR underwriting to reach engaged listeners like you. Mahalo to Simplicity HR by Altres, Chamber Music Hawaii, and Farm Lovers Markets. They believe, as you do, in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. In today's Backyard Quiz, we take a look at a local church sign that got a shout-out on one of the best-selling albums of all time. The Eagles Hotel California was released in 1976, and it sold more than 30 million copies. While the title track is certainly the band's most well-known song, the closing track laments America's westward expansion. Band members Glenn Fry and Don Henley wrote the song, and in a 1987 interview with Rolling Stone, Henley said the gist of the song was that when we find something good, we destroy it by our presence, by the very fact that man is the only animal on earth that is capable of destroying his environment. At one point in the song, he talks about sailing to Lahaina, like the missionaries, who even brought a neon sign, Jesus is Coming. And this refers to the Apostolic Faith Church on Front Street. And you can hear these lyrics on the song, The Last Resort. And congratulations to Sandy from Maui. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Missionaries did so many years ago. They even brought a neon sign. 
Jesus is coming He brought the white man's burden down He brought the white man's reign Who will provide the grand design? What is yours and what is mine? Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Merriman's Restaurants, now reopened for casual dining on Maui, Hawaii Island, and Kauai, and for takeout on Oahu. Details at MerrimansHawaii.com, Facebook, and Instagram. When transplant patients are far away, kidneys often fly commercial. You always hold your breath and, and kind of say a little prayer that everybody does what they're supposed to do along the way. And when they don't? It sickens me to think that organs are being lost and recipients aren't getting them. It just sickens me. On the next Reveal. Starting tonight at 7, following Bite Marks Cafe. As we mark the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II, we spent some time this week talking with Hawaii's first governor of Japanese descent. Governor George Ariyoshi is in his 90s but remains active. He remains connected to the East-West Center, which is dedicated to strengthening ties across the Pacific. Those relationships so important as tensions in the Indo-Pacific are strained. Ariyoshi recalled when he was a teenager, a sophomore at McKinley High School, when Pearl Harbor was bombed. He would later be drafted in the military to serve our country. And one of the first things that they did was issue a decree saying that everybody had to be off the street by 6 o'clock. That means there's a 6 o'clock curfew. My curfew was not 6 o'clock. My mother was very concerned that I may be out late, but she told me my curfew is 5 o'clock. I'm sure to be home when we had to be. And uh, because of the curfew, I never had any evening functions at McKinley. So my children have a hard time believing that I never went out at night. Well, maybe now with uh, our current situation with COVID and, and all the restrictions that they can appreciate, you know, what life was like at that time. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Where did you live at the time? I lived in Chinatown on Smith Street. And because my father was a stevedore, it was very convenient to be there. But when the war broke out, because my father was an alien, he could not work at a stevedore. And we could not live where we were in Chinatown on no, Smith Street. And we were evacuated. We were told we had to get out of the area. We were too close to the waterfront. Where did you move to? to Manoa. My cousins had a farm out in Manoa, so I became uh, a farm boy during my high school years. And do you remember what you were doing on December 7th? I was in Japanese school. I was going to Japanese school, so that Sunday I went to Sunday school. One of the things we did in Sunday school was get there early so we can play ping pong. So we got there early to play ping pong, and I did not know about the attack in Pearl Harbor. Till about 10 o'clock when I got home, my way home, I saw one place on School Street that was uh, shattered, and I did not realize that it's because the bomb was dropped there. But when I got home, my mother was very concerned, and she, she was happy that I was back home, and she had a bag prepared for each of my each of us, and in the bag she had the straps. Uh, food and water in case something happened where we had to go somewhere else, you know. I graduated from McKinley High School, and then when I was in, uh, after that, uh, I was uh, called for military duty, and uh, uh, I entered service just as the war in Europe was coming to an end. And then I went to a basic training on the mainland, Camp Hood, Texas. And in the midst of my basic training, the war with the Pacific, uh, with Japan, came to an end. And so what happened was they sent me from there to Minnesota right away. I didn't know what has, what was going on, uh, and I, I don't know how I got to Minnesota. And I was the only one from Camp Hood that was sent to Minnesota. When I got there, I was told that I was going to be part of the MIS, Military Intelligence Service, uh, and that I was going to get my training there. So Hot Snelling, Minnesota, that's where I did uh, my get got my finished my basic training. From there, I was sent to Japan as a member of the occupation forces. The first person Japanese that I really met was a Shine boy, and I saw him and I went. I thought to myself, he is. Why is he doing this? You know. So I asked him, How old are you? He, said, he was seven years old. Why are you doing this? And he said. Seven-year-old child telling me, my country is hurting, my house, home is hurting, my family is hurting, and I need to help. That's why I'm doing this, making a few dollars that you can get. And I was very impressed that a seven-year-old child would think about his family, 
about his country and do feel he had to make a contribution. So I went and I got a piece of bread. I put some jam on it and I gave it to him. And he made me, he put it away in the box. And I told him, oh, aren't you hungry? Aren't you going to eat it? He said, oh, I'm very hungry. I thank you very much. But I'm going to take this home. And I'm going to share this with Mariko. Who is Mariko? Mariko is my three-year-old sister. And I was really touched, very touched by this young person hearing about his country and his family and taking some piece of bread. And he wants to take it home to share with his three-year-old sister. And I was very impressed. And that's when I felt, if he represents the Japanese feelings, Japan was going to make a very fast recovery from the war effort. And it was in the midst of it. When I got there, I was also learning about America's policy. Now, how MacArthur didn't want to punish Japan, but Japan, he wanted Japan to make a very rapid economic recovery. He wanted Japan to become a new nation, a democracy with a constitution, and he wanted that progress take place. Japanese were very, very grateful to him. They were grateful that he was not punishing them, grateful that he was wanted Japan to make a very rapid recovery, and they wanted to very, very anxious to become the kind of nation that MacArthur wanted Japan to become. And I think it was all put together with the spirit of that young man and the spirit of Japanese. Japan made a very rapid recovery. They became a democratic nation with a constitution, and as a result, became America's greatest ally. Then and now and into the future, I think it's a great uh, ally that they can, it can happen. I think that until that time, focus of America was over and across the Pacific, I mean, uh, Asia and Europe, and they were not too much involved in the Pacific and the small bilateral arrangements that were being uh, entered into. But with Japan and America coming together, it now represented two major democratic nations, one a Western, one Eastern, coming together looking at the whole, not just looking at America or Japan, but looking at how America and Japan could work do things that would be good for the whole Pacific area. And so that U.S.-Japan relations now is very important, not to the countries, but beyond that to the region and to America, and also to Atlantic. And what would you want your grandchildren and great-grandchildren to know about this period? I think they want, I want them to know that there was a very vicious war. America had never been involved in such a vicious war that made so much at stake. But two nations at war against each other, coming together. And I think my children, I want them to know that no matter what happens, friendship between nations become very important. No matter what happens and why we got, what would happen to that point, that it's important to try at any point to develop this friendship in a worldwide basis. That's what I want to happen. Friendship all over the world. And understanding the need for things to happen in order to make the friendship passion. If America had not gone to war, ended the war, and conducted itself in the way that MacArthur and the Japanese, uh, the American effort, he desired to have peace, desired to have a defeated nation get strong, rebuild, that the nation to become a democratic nation, a different kind of nation, and a friendship with the Constitution, a friendship developing between the two nations. That friendship is the most important thing that happened. Ambassador Mansfield talked about that the most important bilateral relations bond on between two nations. That's what happened. And that's what I want my children to know, that their future is important, and the future depends on what countries do. I think also that while the nations between the relationship between Japan and America is very strong, and leaders come together, prime minister and president come together, to me that's not enough. The people of both nations have got to feel this sense of friendship and the many bilateral relations that we create in America and other states and Hawaii between counties and between the states to me is very important. 
uh, people in both nations can feel the importance of the Japan-U.S. alliance. Not just government, but the people itself also feel that alliance. One of the things I'm very grateful for is veterans who went to war and came back and didn't say, oh, we're going to back in our glory. They came back and they look at, now look at Hawaii. You have to look at what kind of state they came back to. And they came back and found a lot of unfairness here in this community. And they participated in government and took over control of the legislature. For the first time in the history of the entire territory, we government was controlled, legislature controlled by the veterans. Democrats came back. They got me involved. I was one of the younger ones, but I had the, became the youngest member of that 1954 political revolution when it took over the legislature for the first time. And what we did was we wanted to create fairness and equity for all the people of Hawaii. And if the government, the veterans, come back had not participated, I do not know whether we would have been to create that. And Noe, Bak Matsunaga, Rosho Kono, Masato Doi, getting involved in that 1954 election. And I was the youngest member of that group. And we brought about and we created all the qualities in labor laws, in land laws, in housing laws, made it possible for Hawaii to be a fairer, a better place. And that's how you believe it changed Hawaii? Yes. Listen, fighting the war, but coming back, fighting for justice and fairness in Hawaii. And that was Governor George Arioshi reflecting about how World War II changed life here in the islands. Arioshi plans to be a part of the activities marking the anniversary of the end of the war next week. Because of COVID-19 and the recent surge in cases, a visit by a contingent of veterans from the U.S. has been canceled. But local veterans still plan to take part in a scaled-down commemoration. For links uh, to what's planned, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. And we are out of time. Tomorrow, we hope to learn more about COVID-19 and herd immunity. Why can't we get there fast enough? Got feedback about something you heard on our air? Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook or tweet us. Hey, email works too. Find our archive shows online. Look under HPR News and Talk for the conversation on hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.